First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. ago, I was sitting in a circle of people, a church circle, a group of parents gathered around a candle. It was yet another circle of support, hastily gathered, a few quick emails, texts, phone calls, after yet another shooting. And which one even was it? We're at the point where I have no idea. We are well beyond that point. We've lit so many candles. So the little chalice flickered because we were asking it to hold all of our grief and all of our rage and all of our fear and disbelief, asking this little candle to transform all of this by its faint fire into some kind of usable hope that we could carry out of there. We sang the words of Ella Baker, the great activist and prophet, give light and the people will find a way. We sang Ella's words again, we who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. And one parent, a mother, spoke in this quiet voice, this trembling voice, almost confessional at first, with these clenched fists and a catch in her throat, tears in her eyes. She said, all the time, always, in all the ways I am trying to help my child feel resilient in this world. That's what I do. That's all I've been doing for 14 years. And I will keep on doing it because there is no other thing in this life that I am here to do. And her voice just got stronger and stronger as she spoke it. She was telling us about fear, but she was fierce. And it's the fear that every parent feels in raising up a precious child. And her tears were this sign of a powerful intention. I can remember the first time I held my own child and feeling this terror I had never known and this intention I'd never felt. I thought my vocation was ministry, but I held that baby and thought, mm, wrong. It's this. Here it is. And in every breath over the crown of her head, whispering these prayers, these incantations, that she would know and trust her power always, her power and her story, her place in the big story, the story in which our lives, all our lives, are just the chapters and verses that she would feel herself always bound to that. To help my child feel resilient, said the woman in our circle. It's like giving a baby good, nutritious, nutritious food, she said. Building, building, building bones and blood and dreams every day, replenishing spent resources. You don't just feed a baby one time and walk away. Always, every few hours, even as adults, we replenish vitamins and confidence. This is what we do, said somebody else in the circle, as humans for each other. This is what we do, said somebody else, in our families, in this church. It was a different church, but it could have been this one. At our best. I know I can't protect my child always, said the woman, obviously. So I'm trying to help them feel and be resilient. Help them trust their own core, their intuition, their wisdom, the muscles of kindness and the unshakable trust that they're worthy and beloved because it will be shaken. 
It's already been shaken almost surely, and it will be again. We're always being shaken up. We keep gathering those circles. We kept on at that church. We keep on now because we know that no one person or family or household can do this alone. We need each other desperately, defiantly. It's why church matters. And I'll just say, echoing Reba, it's why your stewardship campaign matters. This church is the one place you know you can come reliably to put yourself back together, to put the broken pieces of your heart back together. After listening to the news all week long, scrolling through the news, you need each other desperately, defiantly. Jane Hirschfeld says, there are names for what binds us. Strong forces, weak forces, look around, you can see them. Nails rusting into the places they join, joints dovetailed on their own weight. There are names for what binds us to each other, to our hope, our trust, despite the evidence sometimes that this life is so beautiful and miraculous and we ourselves a good and worthy gift. There's all kinds of evidence mounting all the time against that. And all our lives, we're building this resistance capacity in ourselves and each other. And I don't even know what resilience or trust means in a person all on their own by themselves. The image, that image is embedded in our culture. As Unitarians, it's embedded in our religion, in our minds, of this inner resilient strength that some people have, some heroes have it, this inner strength to withstand affliction all on their own, their capes flapping in the back, bullying when they're young, loneliness, depression, derailments of everything when they're older. We have this idea that some people are just resilient with a superpower, as if it were a kind of virtue or a genetic asset and others just have it less. Or maybe they try less hard. But resilient is not a congenital quality, and nor is it only learned. It's a gift more than a discipline. And it's held in common in the stories we risk telling each other, the kindness we risk offering, the light we shine back to a person who's discouraged, the way we say to each other on purpose, I see you shining there even though I can tell you feel dingy and dim and maybe desperate, I see your light. And I can't spare you the, the struggle, but I can tell you that I see your shine and your dignity and your integrity and your inherent strength and goodness and grace. And I know you yourself can't see it now, which is why I'm saying it. And I can place myself next to you because the fact is we're in it together on this little planet, this little life, this blue boat home, all together. And that is the only kind of resilience, reciprocal, communal, that I really get. I saw it here yesterday at Mary Kelly's memorial service, as I've seen it so many times, too many times really this year at memorials. The way the volunteers in this church just circle round a grieving family. They're all over the gathering space in Griffin, and the family comes in, and they just kind of, it's like a flash mob of love. They're just right there around the family, and they set the tables, pour the coffee, bring the flowers and the cookies, and they wrap arms around the shoulders of people they don't even know, literally touching them, and find all the tissues 
and all the words. We're all in it together. I think that's what Tom was singing about just now, about the cop who stops the young guy on the bridge and says, why don't you just talk this through with me? Why don't we just try talking about it? Tell me what you're doing it for. And the guy says, it's a little bit of everything. It's the mountains and the fog and the news and the death of my first dog and the angels up above me and the song they don't sing. It's just everything. Jane Hirschfeld says, there's a name for what binds us. And see how the flesh grows back across your wound with this great vehemence, more strong than the simple untested skin before. There's a name for it on horses when it comes back darker and raised, proud flesh. That's what we honor in each other, lift up for each other. And when two people have loved each other, she says. She's talking about lovers, but we're all lovers in this life of each other and the living world, all journeying. When people love each other, she says, see how it's like a scar between their bodies, stronger, darker, proud, how the black cord of them makes of them a single fabric that nothing can tear or mend. We are resilient together, never alone. It is a covenant. I feel like this whole church right now is made of proud flesh. You've been through so many things, disappointments, disruptions, and you are stronger now. And you may not feel it. It still feels shaky, but you are stronger in indelible, undeniable ways for having come through the struggles together and survived. And here you all are. Neil Gaiman, the novelist, wrote a poem constructed of a thousand tweets from people telling him what they need to feel warm, really warm. Sometimes, he says, it just takes a stranger in a dark place to hold out a badly knitted scarf or offer a kind word to say we have the right to be here to make us feel warm in the coldest season. And he was speaking specifically about and actually to refugees millions and millions of members of our family who are scattered now and far from home, permanently far from home, more than ever in human history. He's speaking about them specifically, people for whom warmth and strength and the courage to go forward is only going to come from people who say and mean it with their money and laws and whole hearts. Welcome. We see you. The seeds of resilience are ratified by hospitality. I remember a person in the church I served in Minnesota, David, who just said, and he was kind of a tough person, tough guy, not sentimental, but one day he just said, like in coffee hour in the hallway, you know what? We are all just stray dogs in this church. We're just a bunch of rescue dogs. That's all we are. And we just come in here all mangy and hungry and a little mean. Our lips are curled up over our teeth. And the church just says, here's your warm bed, and here's your bowl, and you're finally at home. It was so beautiful. Give light, says Ella Baker, and the people will find a way. It's needed on a global scale. It's needed person to person, just a little spark to spark up your own heart. So with eyes open or closed, 
whatever is right for you, just imagine for a moment. Imagine running the palms of your hands over the contours of your spirit. As if your spirit, like your body, as it's aged along, as if your spirit has accumulated scars and bruises and dents and scratches and creaky joints that ache when the weather turns and sensitive spots that most days feel okay but sometimes flare with inflammation and indignation, still raw. Imagine running the palms of your hands gently over the contours of your spirit and finding those raised places where tough, proud flesh reveals an old wound that maybe you'd forgotten about, but you survived it. And somehow battered and broken and repaired and stitched up so many times, you've gotten stronger in some ways. And you've not grown a thick skin, not armor, but muscles you can trust, soul muscles. The wounds themselves keep you open and compassionate. And you understand that other people, all of them, have known injury also. It's not unique to you. The echoes of your own pain keep you humble and alert and grateful now and kind of amazed. And suddenly one day you're able, strong enough, to see it in someone else and reach a hand. In the black church, in the gospel tradition, the people sing, my soul looks back in wonder how I got over. Bernice Johnson Reagan, a musician and historian raised in that tradition, answers that song with her own. She says, I don't know how my mother walked her troubles down. I don't know how my father stood his ground. I don't know how my people survived slavery, but I do remember that's why I believe. So she remembers, she tells the stories, hears the stories, runs these 80-plus-year-old hands over the landscape of her soul and the history of struggle, and find that she believes in hope against all the odds and evidence in spite of and because of the pain. It's one of the greatest gifts of intergenerational community to be among elders who share bits of their biography when we bother to ask them. Not war stories, not, I walked 10 miles to school in the snow and I was your age and it was uphill both ways. Not that, not war stories, but love stories. How did they walk their troubles down? They'll tell us if we ask. You know that to build resilience, You attend to the tender, tired places and consider how healing occurs. You take your vitamins. You eat your good, nutritious food. You drink water. You sleep. You go outside. You stay healthy. I'm talking about literal strategies now, not metaphors. You stay close to dogs or little children or birds or trees, all the lovely, lively creatures that parse the world and piece it back together differently from you with a different sparkling intelligence. You learn from it. You work your program, whether you're addicted to alcohol or chemicals or spending money or self-harm or self-deprecation or self-interest or technology or work. We've all got something. You work your program, and you start over when you stumble, and most important, You find some other people, a meeting, a church, doesn't matter. So you can ask for help and offer it as needed, round and round and round, because both 
heal us up, only both heal us up. A long time ago, my husband Ross and I were teachers at a farm school in Vermont. It was a year-round live-in school where children learned read children and adults learned reading and writing and history and science and math and music and folk dancing and art. You had to be able to sing a hundred folk songs from memory and dance fifty folk so- dances right, to graduate from there. You also had to know how to milk cows by hand without leaving mastitis all over the place, tend chickens, kill chickens, cook chickens, how to mow and bale hay and build sturdy sort of wooden, wooden buildings, how to keep newborn lambs alive in the winter and read the weather in the sky. The school was started by a couple, Dick and Anne, whose baby son was born with profound developmental disabilities. And the kindergarten in their tiny town was unprepared to take him. This was 19, what would it have been, 64. So the parents made a school around him on their farm, and local children came and stayed way up into high school, and eventually kids came from all over the country. And Andy, their son, was just my age, the year Ross and I were there, he was 26, this big, strong guy who loved to be outside working with machines and animals because he really wasn't good at talking. So one day in the winter, and I didn't know how to do any of the things I just said. I still don't, so I'm there t- <laughs> teaching, right? Ridiculous. So I'm out there, and we all had half the day was school, half the day was chores, so I'm hauling water to these old horses in a remote pasture. There was no way to get there except on foot, and the snow was deep. It really was, like deep, uphill, both ways. (laughs) And I had these two five-gallon buckets, right, sloshing all over me in the freezing cold, and Andy saw me from some distance doing something on a fence and threw down what he was doing and comes barreling over, bellowing my name, Toria. And when he reached me, he was out of breath and adamant. He picked up the buckets that I'd set down, and he said, I'll do it. I'm tall, you're short, and weak. And he meant no insult. He never did. It wasn't in him. He didn't get that genetic quality at all. He was just speaking the truth. You're short and weak, obviously. (laughs) And he raised the buckets easily, like levitation, and he just strode off to water the horses. And I trotted alongside like a puppy trying to thank him. And Andy just said, yeah, and ambled off. So that was an act of kindness, but not random. It was an act of practical kindness. It made sense. Andy did not see this as a favor to me. It was more an act of ordering a disordered cosmos. Something was wrong with this picture. And he fixed it because he saw it and he could. And I have carried that transaction all this time in my pocket, in my heart, in the buckets of wisdom that I haul around, mostly empty buckets, but there's a little bit of stuff in there. And I'm still learning how to see with this same wide-angle lens that Andy had, how to notice other people in that way, as if their struggle had something to do with me. And in the rare moments when I can harness that, 
And also remember part of the missing piece there was I didn't ask for help, but he reminded me that's always an option. I think of him. He was the one not smart enough to go to school. They wouldn't have him. And I'm the one still trying to understand sometimes that doing the right thing just makes sense. You don't overthink it. You don't have to work it out. You just do it because you can. That's what justice is, whether it's intimate or global, noticing the disorder, naming it, and setting it straight. And every time I do it, my despair dissipates. My weariness lifts. I read a report on a study of therapists in Washington in 2020, right before the pandemic, documenting this mounting concern in the mental health field that the very people trained to help all the rest of us deal with anxiety and depression and burnout and grief and addiction, therapists, social workers, were themselves at that time reporting total overwhelm emotionally by what some in their field were calling at the time Trump trauma. But it was more than that. It was the cumulative four-year impact of that presidency and all the assaults on our public life and global life and bodies all at once. So clients and patients were carrying, as we do, truckloads of trauma into their therapists. And the difference now that they were able to document was that between this comprehensive trouble and other times was that the therapists were all feeling it too, profoundly. The therapist was suffering too from the exact same affliction the people were bringing in because they watch the same news, they live in the same place. And then they would listen intently for eight or nine hours a day while pretty much everybody dumped it there. The author himself was a therapist, and he said all of the colleagues he interviewed, over 100 people, insisted, even though they were exhausted and a little worried about it, that the talking is better than not talking, that we have to speak despair and fear and loss and hear each other, not to whine and moan and mourn all the time, but bravely to just lance the wound by speaking the sorrow, the soul wound, as well as our endless opinions, the wound at the source of our opinion. And despair left to fester, he said, will puddle into toxic apathy. We know that, and lethal withdrawal. But, quote, channeled properly, despair could fuel an uprising in a good way. So you light your candles, you speak into the circle, you gather with your people, you conjure hope out of thin air and ferocity. You don't feed the baby once and walk away or any living thing, certainly not a community. We're always replenishing our vitamins and our confidence, building bones and hope and replacing our resources. Resilience builds, but only if we offer it to each other through stories from elders, from young people, and more music, more testimony. We kind of roll up our sleeves, pull up our shirts, and say, proud flesh here. These are the scars that prove we've survived through many dangers, toils, and snares. We've already come. And grace has brought us safe thus far, the grace that we offer each other, and grit, and hope will lead us on. That's a mandate, that song. Resilience in a person, a country, a church, 
is about shaping these strong dreams, powerful roadmaps of where you mean to go and how you mean to travel. And when you lose the map or it blows away, you call on each other to remember. How did you walk your trouble down before? You ask each other, what's the best way to keep warm? You lift each other's buckets because you see it and you can. You ask for help, trusting it will come and remembering that to ask somebody for help is to bless them with a sacrament. It is our great covenant to speak and seek the truth in love and to help each other. For just a few moments, we'll hold silence together. Thank you.